Ten years ago, I was pastor at First Congregational Church in Peru, Illinois. And I opened up the Bible that Sunday, and I said to everybody, please turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 4, verse 24, I think I said. Well, guess what? Colossians 4.24 doesn't exist. And then I said, wait a second, what's in, actually in the bulletin, you see? Because that's what I had written down on my sermon notes. And I said, what's in the bulletin? I said, oh, 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 I'm wrong. Oh, it was uh, Corinthians, I think. Was it Corinthians 4.24? So I said, okay, go to 2 Corinthians 4.24. Wait a second, that doesn't exist either. And um, then I was like, oh, wait a minute, maybe it was... 2 Corinthians 24.4? like, wait, no, there's not, that doesn't exist either. And uh, this is exactly what I said. So 10 years ago, almost to today, as best I can tell from looking through my sermon archives, I said, you know what? Everybody open up to John 3.16. Can we do that? Can we do that? And, th and then I was like, all right. So we read that, and then I preached a, a passage, I preached a sermon that I never did figure out exactly what I had exposited. Uh, and then I went back a week later and I'm like, oh, okay, it was like uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 or something. And uh, I don't know what had happened. I just got all messed up and, uh, you know, I probably had a busy week. I think maybe there was a funeral or something. And uh, I think I had mixed together like two sermon notes or something. And, and uh, afterwards some folks were like, man, I don't know where you got that, but that was a good sermon, you know. And I'm like, hey... You can't give away what you don't have. I guess I had something inside there. So, I haven't preached from John 3.16 in 10 years. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really happy to do it right now. I'm really pleased to have actually exposited the passage of Scripture that I've asked to be read. And here's why. This morning, I want to share some thoughts from John 3, 14 through 17. I'll actually exposit the text I claim. And I, and I want to do that today because this is, this is it, isn't it? I, I mean, in a number of ways, this passage of Scripture has been called the, the great synopsis of the Gospel. The foundation of the kingdom. I want to say to you right now, wherever you're at, whatever's going on in your relationship to God to your spouse, to your, to your emptiness, to your work, whatever is happening inside of you today, on the inside, the place where you actually live, God loves you. Listen, I want to say something that, that is, is the foundational premise for everything that we do and are as Christians in the world. God loves you. I could put a period at the end of that sentence and say amen and go home, but you all know me far better than that. Take a look at this picture, if you would. This is, uh, man, this is a picture. You'll see throughout the presentation this morning parts of that picture. This is a painting that was painted, as best I can tell, the year of my birth. And uh, it's in the West Bank neighborhood of Minneapolis, near a part of Minneapolis where I used to recruit when I was a recruiter for the Army National Guard. All over Minneapolis, Minnesota, there are wonderful murals like this. 
I read an article in 2017 that said the church, which happens to be called the Church of God's Love, they'd been there a long time, but they'd leased that building, and their lease was up, and they were going to be moving on, and the owner of the building was going to paint over this wonderful mural. The weather there is similar to the weather here, and it just was flaking off, and the owner didn't want to keep it there. I, I can't, if, if anybody goes to Minneapolis sometime soon, I'd like to know if it actually got painted over. I love this, the, the images of this. And it's that simple. God loves you. On this mural it says, and you can see most of it on the right-hand side, whosoever will, it actually says whosoever will come, although that part is fading or gone now. The simple fact of the matter and the reality is that God loves us. That God loves us and sent His Son into the world not to condemn us, but to redeem us. But that love is not a sentimental love. It's not a Hallmark card kind of love. It's not a passing Valentine's Day kind of love. That love is a saving love. It saves and rescues us. Which presupposes that we were drowning in a sea of sin and sorrow and shame and we needed to be saved. It's a securing love which presupposes that without Him keeping us, we might be lost again. It's a soothing love. I hope that it has been and continues to be and, and, and is increasingly your experience and mine that when we encounter the love of God directly, that there is a kind of soothing, salving, healing, restorative property to knowing God in Christ and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Listen, this kind of love is a supernatural love. You know, it's, it's not one that can be lost. It's not one that, you can, that, that, that they're going to get tired of you. That they're going to grow weary of you. It's not one where they're going to forget you. This love that God has for us is a, is a healing love, and it's the foundational principle of all that it means to be or to become or to continue to be followers of Jesus Christ in the world. In other words, we are the very incarnation of God's love in the world to the extent that we are now the body of Christ. This is a love that comes with a great deal of responsibility. If we who were lost were found by the one who left the 99 to go out to find the one who had gone astray, each one of us being that one who had gone astray, if we have been rescued and ransomed by the shepherd who gave his very life to save the sheep, then you and I have a greater responsibility than we often put into action in the real world. We were just singing, Draw Me Close to You. The question I have for you today is, is that love? Is it like far off? Is it some idea? Is, is it some kind of metaphor? Jesus, the Lamb of God, the choir sang. Listen, is that Lamb your personal Savior? And beyond that, if you say, yes, I've received Him and I've, I, I've asked Him to come into my heart and, and I've confessed Him as Lord... Now, in the real world, in our daily experience, is the love of God filling us up? Is it something you know? What is your default in the world when trial comes, or difficulty, or uncertainty, or, or changes, or, or challenges? Is it, is, it, is it to resort to the old sinful ways, or is it to fall upon the love of God? 
And who are we and who are we going to become as a people of God, as a place where God is adored and worshipped in this place? I'd love to change the sign out front. No longer say Mount Hope Congregational Church. Say Mount Hope Avenue Mission. Like it was in the early days, but that would confuse everybody. They'd say, that's all, that's schoolcraft, what are you doing? Bunch of weirdos. D.L. Moody told the story of a long-ago vessel that was wrecked. And as the story goes, the lifeboats were not enough to take in all of the passengers. A man who was swimming in the water swam up to the lifeboats. And the lifeboat was so full that it was already near going under. And a self-appointed lifeboat captain who happened to have a large knife threatened the man, don't you touch the lifeboat. And he did, and the story goes that the man cut his hand off. He came back. The man so wanted to be saved. He came back and he put his other hand onto the lifeboat. And the story goes that the man was the strongest man in the boat, the most assertive, the self-appointed lifeboat captain. He cut off his other hand. The man, still so desperate to be saved from his circumstance, he swam around to the other side of the boat and began to grasp at it with handless arms. And then someone in the boat shouted, Surely we'll not cut off his head. Bring him aboard. Moody used to say, Do you long to be saved as that man longed to be saved? Do you wish to be ransomed and rescued from all of the consequences of the brokenness of sin in this world? Do you long to be saved from your own shame and regret and disappointment and questions and fear? If so, there is a love that is available for each one of us. And if we have found that love, let us not grow complacent in our knowledge of that love, so much so that we, we, we act as though it's not present. We act like the man who fears everything, and he has a faithful and loyal lion living in his house who would protect him at no all costs. But he's afraid. Or like the man who thinks he has no friend in the world when there are dozens around him who assault him with love, who attack him with love, who beg him to be loved. But he pushes everyone away because something so dark and deeply broken on the inside that he has never come to acknowledge the fact that he is worthy of such love. This morning, I just want to exposit a few principles from this very familiar passage of Scripture. You don't even have to be a Christian to have heard John 3.16. All you had to do was go to a football game and see hairy-chested guys with it painted on their chest or something, right? The offer of grace is not to a select few, and you, yes you, in spite of all that you've done, and me, in spite of all that I am, are worthy of so great a love as this. One commentator said it this way, in John chapter 2 through chapter 4, the evangelist teaches the universal possibility of the journey of believing. We sing songs like Draw Me Close to You, and that presupposes that the you to whom we're singing exists. 
not metaphor. In this chapter, in verses 14 and 15, and if you'd care to follow along, I'm printing every week and putting out in that little thing a sermon outline for those who like it. If you don't have one and want it, raise your hand and and an usher will come around. Michelle and I are about to wager a quarter. Somebody get that woman a handout. She needs it. It helps her to focus. She likes it. Get her, you have a pen? Thank you. Listen, if you'd like one, get it. Michelle and I are about to bet a quarter to see who wins. As to, She says, I shouldn't print them and put, put one in every bulletin because some folks don't use it. I get it. Sometimes I preach and like, it's like a 30-minute sentence. I get it. You're just listening. And praying that God does something, uses my broken words and fills them up. For some people, this outline is helpful. As you come in, I'm just trying to remind you the next few weeks, as you come in, if you want a sermon outline, then grab one out of that little thing. And then if enough of them are gone, then I'll prove my point to Michelle that it's worth it. (laughs) Thank you, see? Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. That, we, that she was gonna, that, thank you very much. She was going to count how many were left. <laughs> Bang. Boom. Hey, M- Michelle does a far greater job around here trying to save this church money than you realize. She even puts the pastor on a print diet. <laughs> so let's look at this verse by verse uh, for, for a few minutes. Verses 14 and 15, there is the new birth. And that new birth is said to have been secured by two acts. Let's quickly look at those. The first act is the death of Jesus. Again, think not of the Christian life, the message of the Bible, as some kind of story and metaphor. A man named Jesus who was sent from God, John said, died for your sin. John wrote his gospel. Why? He says it, so that you may believe. He said, Jesus, this God-man, did so many things that if we were to write it down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it, but here's what you need to know so that you can believe. The first thing you must know and believe is that Jesus died for sinners. Jesus illustrated his point by using the Old Testament story of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21. Here that is briefly. The children of Israel had begun to murmur and grumble about the trials of the wilderness. Remember, some of them even said, let's go back to Egypt. At least there we didn't starve, you know. Where's this guy Moses taking us? God disciplined them by sending fiery serpents to plague them, the Bible says. The discipline worked. The people repented and they begged God for mercy. God met the people's need by telling Moses to make a bronze image of a serpent and then hold it up on a pole in the midst of the people. And he said, whoever looked upon the serpent would be healed. Now Jesus says, I'm like that. I must be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. The people of Israel were dying from the poison of the fiery serpents. Men today are dying from the poison of the serpent the deadly poison of sin. Think not that Christianity is a remedy to aid in our assistance of self-actualization and elevation as individuals. 
Don't make of the Christian way an Oprah gospel to make us a little better off, to elevate us a little bit. Be very careful about the wickedness of the lie today that you and I are not in need of rescue. Remember Moody's illustration. How desperately do we long to be saved is directly correlated with the depth or the extent to which we realize that we are drowning in sin and we need salvation. Uh, The serpent is a symbol of the evil one, that is, Satan. Jesus Christ destroyed the works of the devil by being lifted up, by looking upon the defeated evil, the serpent. Israel was healed, just as you and I are healed, by turning our attention away from this world and focusing on Christ at the cross. Everything we need to know about who Jesus is about what He does in our life and about who we are called to be is found in looking at Jesus upon the Christ, the, the cross. There, dying for the very ones who hammered in the nails. The extent of His love is expressed in the wideness of His outstretched arms. There, that's how much God loves you. Right there, on the cross, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, unlike other earthly kings who, who come and want to be served this king of kings who created everything that those kings think they own and survey, who has real power beyond anything they can comprehend, this one dies on a cross for you, by name. That's how much he loves us. And then, what am I supposed to do in the world? What did Jesus say? Take up your cross and follow me. All the way to Calvary, now live a sacrificial servant's life in the world. That's how you reflect my beauty in the world. And in so doing, we discover that that's where real joy is. We find joy in serving the Lord. Then all of a sudden, it's not metaphor, it's not a story. He's not a Savior, He's my Savior. And I could know it in the depth of my heart. John chapter 12 and verse 32, Jesus says, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Every Israelite listening would have known what he meant. I'm like that serpent. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. And if you look to me, if that's your attention, if that's what you confess, if you put your faith there now, you will receive the healing, restorative love of God. The only requirement for this gift is that you accept it. That's it. So there is the death of Jesus that the new birth is secured by. The second act of salvation is man's belief. By believing, verse 15. The man who believes in the Son of Man being lifted up, he finds healing. And what is belief if not trust and faith? So I place my faith there. That's what I actually do. You see that? There is a direct connection between what I believe and what I do. Think, it, think that's untrue? Just consider your own psychology. Look at what you do in your life. Our action is driven by our belief. You tell me what you believe, I'd rather watch what you believe by what you do. I had a great conversation this morning with a man I'm hoping someday to maybe develop a relationship with and maybe try to lead him to Christ. He works at a gas station nearby. I'm so annoying. I, don't, I even start talking about Jesus at gas station, guys. 
But we're getting a good conversation going this morning. He's from the Middle East, and we're talking, and he's telling me all kinds of things. And he says, hey, what do you think of this coronavirus thing? I said, I don't know, man. I mean, I'm going to use hand sanitizer, but truth be told, I just think we live in a culture of fear. I think the media would have us terrified all the time, so we're constantly looking. I, I don't know. That's, that's what my heart tells me. Uh, granted, I'm doing the fist bump thing like, like other people too. But. And I said, think about it. Think about it. Where are you from? And he starts telling me where he's from. And, and, and uh, I said, you know, I, I spent a long time in the United States military. I have friends who died in Afghanistan. A kid I recruited died in Afghanistan. I said, my inclination is to be nervous about you because of where you're from. And I said, and I think the media plays on that, and people want me afraid of you. I, I don't know what the end game is. If it's just control or ratings, I have no idea. He said, you know, the thing about me is I just look at people's actions. I don't really care about where they're from or what color they are. Or what. I just look at their actions. Look in the mirror. Tell yourself what you believe. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of his goodness, a good man speaks good things. Out of the abundance of his wickedness, a vile man speaks wickedness. What do you believe? John 5.24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, or truly, truly, I say to you, He that hears my word and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but be passed from death unto life. Listen, here are five points uh, from John 3.16. And then we'll uh, conclude. And these I'll go through much more uh, quickly. So John 3.16, there is the fact that God so loved the world. The idea that God loves the whole world is a relatively new idea in, in terms of like broad human history. The Jews believed God only loved the religion the religious, the true Jews, you know, and hated the non-religious, the Gentiles, even referring to us who are outside of the covenant, those of us who are Gentiles who are not of Jewish descent as dogs and pigs. That's, that's what they believed. The same thoughts are held by many in every generation, especially by religionists. I would call you to question the content of your faith. Are you a religionist or are you a disciple of Jesus? What do you really believe? The fact that God truly loves is shocking to many. Can he love a vile person? Can he love a murderer? An immoral person? I find all those pretty easy. A wife abuser. Can he love him too? What about a child abuser? Does God still love a child abuser? A prostitute? I find that easy to deal with. She didn't ask to be there. A thief? An alcoholic? What about a workaholic? Is there really any difference between an alcoholic and a workaholic at the end of the day? In either case, he's not present for his family. What about a person who's homeless on the street? What about someone who's oppressive? The ones who actually create the problems? Here's the simple truth. God loves every man, not just the religious and the good. So you and I must be cautious to put our faith in the man who died on a cross who was lifted up and recognize the fact 
that God loves the whole world because God is love and love is action. And there is Jesus, the action of God's love, dying on a cross. And there are you and I called to reflect that, to be bringers of truth and logic in a world gone mad. And even more so, to bring the expression of God's love into being with our very hands and feet. There is the evidence. So there is the fact God loved. There is the evidence God gave His only Son. What more evidence do we need? The most glorious evidence of God's love is that God took the initiative to save us. I love this verse when it says, and He came into the world. God's Son came into the world. He didn't wait around. I'm good at loving people who come looking for love from me. I'm not nearly as good as seeking out someone to to assault with love. That takes work. If somebody comes and they love you already, well, that's easy. You know, if a wet-haired woman climbs into your bed and says, Hey, I missed you. I love you. You're like, Oh, I love you too. Just dry your hair next time. But that's easy. But Jesus says, even the Pharisees do that. They love people who love them. Our great reward is to lavish love as the visual, touchable representation of the cross of Jesus Christ in the world. To love the unlovely. The purpose of God's love. It is to save men. God's purpose in giving His Son was threefold. To save us from perishing, to save us to eternal life, and to save us through belief. What do you believe? Then there is the proof of God's love in the incarnation. Christ was not sent to condemn or judge the world. Be very careful what we make of the content of our Christianity. God's Son was not sent into the world to condemn or judge the world. This is so hard for us who are always teetering on the great temptation to make of our religion religion. And see ourselves like the Pharisees did. We're the righteous ones. We're the good ones. We're just a little judgy. Lastly, there is the means of salvation. Friend, I, I believe the Word of God to be the true, inerrant, inspired message of our Creator to us. I believe this on the foundation that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. And during his lifetime, he cited the Old Testament, and then he gave authority for the penning of the new. And then those who penned it, those apostles and the early church, were willing to die as evidence of having seen him resurrected. I I really believe that this is the Word of God. And its message is this, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Amen.